Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16 as we continue our study in this book. We come to a critical turning point in 1 Samuel this morning, a turning point we've been anticipating since Hannah opened her mouth to sing in chapter 2. She gave us clues to tune our heart to expect a turning point like we find today. Remember, she said, the Lord brings low and He exalts. To the proud, he says, the bows of the mighty are broken. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. And in conclusion, she says, the Lord will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. So, there is this bringing down and lifting up that we've been clued into to orient our minds to the shape of this book. In the first seven chapters, we saw this play out in the lives of Eli and his arrogant sons who were brought down, but then in the life of the young boy Samuel, who was lifted up by the Lord. Then in chapters 8 to 15, we have begun to trace the rise of King Saul, but then over the last couple of weeks, we have seen his demise, his fall. So we know what will probably come next right? It's time for the Lord to exalt the horn of a new king to replace Saul. The end of chapter 15 makes us ready for this. As Samuel is confronting Saul in verse 26, he says, you've rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 28 The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and hear this, has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So, as we open the passage in front of us this morning, we are not surprised to see the anointing of a new king, a new king who we were already told will be better than Saul. But this is the question I want to ask this morning. What makes this new king better? There are so many things from this very familiar passage that we're about to read that come to our mind as most important. But this is the question that is most important in this passage. What makes the new king better than Saul? By what criteria could we determine if the new king will be better than Saul? We could ask the question more generally, what makes any one person better than another person? Not just in thinking about kings. What if we were to think about businessmen? 
or athletes or students. How do we determine what makes one better than another? Well, don't we normally make those assessments based off of what our eyes can see? Isn't that right? By what our human eyes are able to see. So in the realm of business, what makes a business person better than another one? I mean, it has to do with who has the most sales, who has the most revenue, whose bottom line is doing better than somebody else's. Or what about in sports? The better athlete is the one with the most Super Bowl rings, championship rings. When it comes to the world of academics, the better student is simply the one with better grades, right? Better test scores. What about the popularity contests? Which, by the way, I've been noting lately, doesn't end when you graduate high school or college. Who's better in that contest? Well, it's usually the one that was better in the other areas first. Better in business, better in school, better in athletics, but then also better looking than the other person. The human eyes make assessments as to what is better. And that's exactly what was going on with Saul. It's no surprise to learn that when we read the first description of Saul in chapter 9, verse 2, we read that there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. That's an assessment that can be made somewhat objectively with the human eyes. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. That is certainly an objective observation. Tall and good looking. But tall Saul has taken a fall. He was the king Israel asked for, but not the king that Israel needed. They needed a better king. But what makes the king they need better than the king they had? All of you are serving a king of some kind. So let me ask, you the question this morning as well. What will make the king you need, which is on the pages of our Bible, better than the one you have? Let me give you a clue. It has something to do with the way that you look at things versus the way God looks at things. The way man sees versus the way God sees. And so with that in mind, let's see what makes this new king better. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king 
among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Saul did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not set down till he comes here. Then he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for it is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his son, sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
So David was better than Saul. Chapter 15 told us that he would be, but what made him better? And what does that teach us about the king that we need? There are two things that made him better, really quite simply, but they may not be what you're thinking they are. In fact, I'm afraid I may disappoint you today in what I have to say. But hopefully you will see that these two things are critical for what it is that we need in a king. The sermon's really simple. The first thing that makes the new king David better than Saul is God chose him. God chose him. This is the main point of verses 1 to 13, and in some ways, I could be done with this sermon. This, this is the point. That's what made him better. But let's trace through the story to see why I say this is the main thing here. At the end of chapter 15, Samuel's grieved over Saul. We see him, the first verse of chapter 16, still grieving. Why is he grieving? It could be that he had affections for Saul. They've done a lot of life together. Saul has a lot, I mean, Samuel has a lot bound up in the ministry, the reign of Saul, and he's let him down at so many turns. He's rebelled against the Lord. He has failed, and so he's grieving over this failure. That could be. But it could be that he's grieving for the people of Israel. He knows that how it goes with the king is how it goes with the people in his kingdom. And he loves the people. Remember what he said in chapter 12? Far be it from me that I would cease to pray for you. He loves the people and he is afraid. What will become of Israel now that Saul has been rejected by the Lord? But the Lord tells him it's time to stop grieving. But before we get to the reason why, I just want to stop and say, I think it's very appropriate that Samuel would be grieving over Saul. Anytime a leader sins grievously and publicly, it should make us grieve. Anytime we begin to see the consequences of the sin of our leaders, wreak havoc on a community. We should weep. We should be grieved. Samuel, the man of God, the prophet of God, like Jeremiah after him, weeps. Like Jesus after him, weeps over the city. But God says it's time to stop weeping. It's time to stop grieving. Look at verse 1. How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Why can Samuel stop grieving? Because the Lord has rejected Saul. Because the Lord has selected a new king. And it's God's selection, God's election, 
God's choice that makes the new king better than the old one. I want to show you why I'm emphasizing this so much. Look at verse 1. Again, there's an important phrase here. Two little words. Actually, in the original, it's just two little letters appended to the end of a word. The Lord has provided for Himself a king. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a sense in which Saul's reign was because God put him on the throne. Chapter 12, verse 13 makes that clear. But from the very beginning, from chapter 8, as kingship is brought up, we are told repeatedly that Saul was the king that Israel sought for themselves. A king to rule them like the nations. In chapter 8, they said, appoint for us a king to judge us like all of the nations. Samuel called their king in chapter 8, the one you have chosen for yourselves. Little words, but really important to show the contrast of what's going on in verse 1 of chapter 16. They'd chosen a king for themselves, a king who had failed. The Lord was now providing a king for Himself. Notice that. I mean, this king will be for the nation, but God says, I have provided a king for myself. And if he has done that, then he will not fail. To quote a line from Martin Luther's hymn, which we'll sing in a couple of weeks, this man would be the man of God's own choosing. And God's choice is the fundamental reason why he is better than the king Israel chose for themselves. God always had a plan to put a king on the throne. You can read about it all the way back in Genesis 49. You can see it in Deuteronomy 17. You can read it in the last verse of Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, verse 10. It was always in God's heart to put a king over His people. He allowed Saul to be placed there, the one that they chose, in order to teach Israel a lesson that the king that they chose for themselves would not do. Only the king that God chose for Himself would be sufficient for their needs. This king is the king that God provided for Himself. This word provide is critical to this passage. For those of you who are Bible study nerds, I'm going to give you a little bit of Hebrew. The word provide comes from the Hebrew word ra'ah. You can write it down. It's R-A apostrophe A-H. Ra'ah. The reason I draw your attention to it is it's used nine times in this passage but you can't see it because it's translated differently. Here, and in verse 17, it's translated as provide. In verse 18, it's translated as see. In verses 6 and 7, translated as look upon. In verse 7, it's translated as appearance. There's a clear play on words going on. 
which I will draw out as we continue. But for now, I simply want to say verse 1 could easily be translated, not just I have provided for myself a king, that's true, but I have seen for myself a king. This theme of seeing shows up in verse 1. But a king that is very different than the one that Israel would choose. He sees, God sees in a way that is different than the way man sees. Let's continue with the story. Samuel is a little afraid after he hears this charge to go to Bethlehem. I think the reason's pretty simple why he's afraid. He's in Ramah. He's got to go to Bethlehem. But the road from Ramah to Bethlehem runs right through Saul's hometown of Gibeah. And remember the last encounter Samuel had with Saul. He was telling him, the kingdom's been torn from you. The Lord has rejected you. It may be a little dangerous for him to now walk down Main Street of Gibeah with a horn of oil in his hand. And so he says he's afraid, but the Lord provides him a cover. Take a heifer with you. You'll be able to offer a sacrifice as you arrive. Samuel obeys the Lord. Unlike Saul, he goes to Bethlehem. But when the elders of the town see him coming, they too are afraid. Verse 4 tells us they're terrified. Not necessarily because of Saul, though. I think it's because of Samuel. Why do I say that? Well, remember the last public ministry deed that Samuel did? He hacked King Agag to pieces. So maybe if he showed up in your town, you may wonder what he was doing there. Do you come peaceably? He assures them that he does and tells them to get ready for the sacrifice. Then he walks out to Jesse's place to invite this family to the sacrifice as well. But before they sit down to eat, he wants to see all of Jesse's sons so he'll know the one that the Lord has chosen to anoint. Look at verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. There's our word, ra'ah. He looked on Eliab. Eliab was the oldest son, and he was tall and good-looking, as we'll see in verse 7. But in verse 7, the Lord says, Do not look on his appearance, ra'ah, again, now translated a third way, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Like another tall and good-looking man, the Lord has rejected the firstborn son. Of Jesse. Then we come to the key phrase in our passage, maybe the key phrase in the whole book. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's the one you've committed to memory, right? What does it mean? It's the key verse in this passage. What does it mean? This is where I'm afraid I may disappoint. Many take this verse to mean that the Lord looks at a man's inward character, not simply his external qualities. 
And so the Lord will choose the one who has a good heart. That's who the Lord will choose. And it is certainly true that the Lord sees our heart, not merely our external characteristics. He can see past all of the outside stuff into the depths of our being. We can read dozens of passages of Scripture that make that point. So it's true. And God does care about character in His leaders. That is also true. Hannah's song has tuned our attention to look not for a proud and arrogant leader, but one who is humble and who trembles at God's Word. But I'm not quite sure that's what verse 7 is saying. All of that's true, but I'm not quite sure that's what verse 7 is saying. The translation here takes a few liberties when it says man looks on the outward appearance. You may underline that. But the Lord looks at the heart. A more literal translation would read this way. Man looks with the eye. That's what that word should be. Not outward appearance. With the eye. Man looks with the eye. The Lord looks with the heart. With His heart. Not into somebody else's heart. That's true, but I don't think that's what verse 7 is saying. Man looks with his physical eyes. God looks with his heart. Man makes choices based off of what he sees. God makes choices based off of what is in his heart. God's perspective is determined by his own will and purpose. This is what we saw in chapter 13 when I also, I hate correcting translations. You have good translations. But sometimes liberty is taken. In verse chapter 13, it says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The other, probably the second most known in the book. But a more accurate translation would be, The Lord has sought out a man according to his own heart. According to God's own choice. In 2 Samuel 7, David's looking back on all of this. The Lord has made a covenant with David and David prays to God and says, because of your promise and according to your own heart. The exact same phrase from chapter 13. You have brought all of this about. The thing that makes David better than Saul, if I can be so bold, is not because he had a better heart. He did have a better heart. He did have more character. And that will be proven by way of contrast throughout his life. But the thing that made him better was he was the man of God's own choosing, not the one that Israel had chosen. I think that's the main thing this passage is about. David is God's chosen one. Supported in what follows, after Eliab is rejected, each of the brothers come forward, verses 8 to 10. 
Abinadab comes and he says, the Lord hadn't chosen him. Shammah comes, the Lord says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made all of his sons pass before Samuel and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So Samuel asks if Jesse has any more sons. And he says, yeah, there's, there's one more, the youngest. Look at your footnote there. Literally reads, the smallest. So not the tallest, but the smallest. But he's keeping the sheep. We can't bother him. But the Lord... But Samuel says, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. What he's saying is, I, I don't need any objections. Look, just let's, let's put this, let's put this on, the, on the bottom shelf. We're not eating until David shows up. So they go and get him. And when he comes, we're surprised to read in verse 12 that he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Oh, I thought that looks weren't the thing. No, they're not the thing. (laughs) The thing is God's choice. But God wants us to see that even the handsome one can be chosen by God. But it's not His looks that matter. It's God's choice that matters. Verse 13, the Lord says, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. Saul's been rejected. David's been selected. This is the man after God's own choosing. And God has a habit of choosing differently than we do. Man looks at the tallest and the strongest and on that account makes their selection. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He's been doing it since Genesis all the way down to the present day. Man chooses men like Saul. God chooses men like David, the youngest son of an unimportant family in an insignificant town, a young boy who is tending the sheep and probably covered with their stench as he stands before Samuel to be anointed. That's the one, God says, that I have chosen to be shepherd over my people, Israel. God's choice is the first reason David is better than Saul. I know you may be thinking, where's the application in that for me? We'll get there. The second reason is found in verses 13 to 23. We have seen God chose him. Now we see that God's Spirit was upon him. After David's anointed, we read in the back half of verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. Then in verse 14, by way of contrast, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So, the second reason David was better than Saul Not only was Saul rejected and David selected, we also see here that God's Spirit departed from Saul, but it was imparted to David. That's why he's better. Chosen and has God's Spirit upon him. 
In the Old Testament, it was common for the Spirit of God to come on a leader to equip him for a task. We see this with Moses. We see this with Joshua. Read it repeatedly in the Judges that the Spirit rushed upon a judge and then they go and they fight a battle and they win. The Lord's Spirit rushes upon a person for them to accomplish a task. The same thing happened with Saul. The Spirit rushed upon him. He prophesied. It rushed upon him. He was victorious over his enemies. So we're not surprised that the Spirit now has rushed upon David. The surprise is we're told that the Spirit was upon him from this time forward. It remained on him. No surprise then in Psalm 51, when David blows it big time, he says, let take not your Holy Spirit from me. But God had already promised that he never would. It remained on him and equipped him to do what the Lord had called him to do. God was with him. In other words, that's what made him better. This special presence of God is on display, illustrated really, in verses 14 to 23. After the Spirit departs from Saul, we read, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We don't know exactly what the harmful spirit was, but we know the effect that it had. In chapter 18, the harmful spirit, verse 10, rushed upon Saul. <laughs> Different way of using the word rush there. And he raved within his house. Chapter 19, verse 9, again, the harmful spirit came upon Saul and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand and he sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. That's what's coming in weeks ahead. The spirit, harmful spirit, has an effect on Saul that makes him stark raving mad and makes him want to kill David. Some say it was a demon, others an angel of judgment that brings misery to Saul. Others simply that it was a mood or a disposition. But whatever it was, it was for the Lord. The Lord was in His sovereignty using it to bring about Saul's demise and bringing about the rise of David. And through Saul, it led the setting king to oppose the anointed king eventually. But the great surprise in this passage, we often get so knocked off kilter based off of things that don't make sense to us in a passage that we miss the main thing in the passage. The great surprise in this passage is not that God was behind the harmful spirit. The rest of the Bible teaches us repeatedly that the Lord is behind all things. He kills and He brings to life. Hannah told us that in chapter 2. Job tells us he gives good and he gives evil, disaster. The big surprise is that God here uses the anointed king, David, to bring comfort to the rejected king, Saul. 
The way this unfolds is Saul's servants see that he's having these bouts of madness and they know God is behind it. So they make a suggestion. Seek out a man to play the liar, to comfort you. Saul takes their advice. And notice in verse 17 what he says. Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. That's the same verb used in verse 1. It shouldn't be lost on us. I have provided for myself a king. I think it's foreshadowing. The man of God's own choosing will end up being the man Saul chooses, ironically, to bring him comfort. One of Saul's young servants suggests David. I want you to notice the words he uses in verse 18. Behold, I have seen Ra'ah, a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So not only can he play the lyre like Jeff Warren plays the guitar, I mean, a phenomenal musician. We know from the rest of the Bible that this is the best songwriter who ever lived. Not only that, he's also brave and a man of war. Where did this young man get this information on David? I think what's happening is verses 14 to 23 are not in strict chronological order. They probably take place after the events with David and Goliath. That's why this young man knows these things. But that's not the important point here. The important point here is to see that the Spirit is at work through David. The Lord is with him. That's why he's skilled at playing the lyre. That's why he's brave and valiant. That's why he's so well-spoken. The Lord is with him. The Spirit is upon him. The Lord has prepared him for service. And the young man's speech does the trick. Saul sends for David. David comes into his service. He plays the lyre. Saul is comforted. The harmful spirit departs from him. Simply wanting us to see, or at least wanting us to see, the man of God's own choosing, on whom the Spirit of God rests, will be successful in his ministry, in his service. And ironically, the man who will eventually take the throne is in the throne room of Saul. Not, get this, so he knows. Remember, he's had oil poured over his head. He knows that he will be the king one day. And now that he's in Saul's chambers, is he trying to usurp the throne? Is he attacking? No. Instead, he's serving him. And will maintain that posture for the rest of Saul's life. And will even weep for him when he dies. The thing that makes David a better king than Saul is that God chose him and His Spirit was upon him. 
The point of the passage is to establish David as the rightful king, the man of God's own choosing, the king that the people of Israel needed. But the other reason this passage is here is is a picture of one who would be even better than David. Another one who would come from the line of Jesse, who is the king that we need. It's interesting, when we come to the prophet Isaiah, there's so many passages, but in chapter 11, 200 years after this, Isaiah says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. David was a better man than Saul because God chose him, the Spirit was upon him, but David points us to the coming of the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, an even better man, the one that we need. And how do we know that He's the one that we need? Because God chose Him to be our Savior. God anointed Him to accomplish the work that He came to do. At Jesus' baptism, He's anointed by John the Baptist. And then He comes out of the water and we read in Matthew that the heavens were opened to Him and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Later at the transfiguration, the Father will say, My beloved Son, My chosen one. He wants everybody to know the most important application of this passage, Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the anointed one sent by God, the man of His own choosing. Following His baptism, He walks into the synagogue and opens up another passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 61. And He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because the Lord has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The people of God were suffering in poverty and in oppression and in slavery, not by some physical forces, but by sin and Satan. Jesus says, I am the One, the Anointed One. The Spirit of God is upon Me to accomplish a ministry much more important than the ministry that David had in Saul's chambers. But get this. There is a similarity to the two ministries. For Jesus also walks into the room, as it were, of His enemies in order to bring healing to them. He is not the person that anyone would look upon. He wasn't as good looking as David. How do I know that? Isaiah 53 tells us he had no form or majesty that we should look on him. No beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. People that looked on him with their eyes, they esteemed him not, but the eyes of God's heart looked upon him and said, that is my chosen one, and he has come to bring healing to my people. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to His own way. The Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. David was a shepherd. Jesus was a shepherd. But Jesus laid down His life for the sheep. That's what God anointed him to do. That's why God chose him for that task. Which king will you look to? A king like the nations? A king of your own choosing? So be it. That king will fall. That king will fail. And you will remain lost in your sins. But if you will turn in faith to the man of God's own choosing, on whom God's Spirit came to accomplish the purpose of paying the price for your sins, then you will be saved. Let us pray. Father, our vision is limited. Grant us the eyes of faith. Our will is weakened, wounded. Grant us the gift of repentance. Let us turn our eyes upon Jesus. Receive Him as King and as Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.